Hello, this is Jeff Windsor, and this is Lucky Words, a podcast where we talk about culture, art, and a good deal of poetry, ideally all while we're outdoors doing something cool. I'm sitting in an unnamed canyon. Well, it probably has a name, but I don't know what it is. I'm in southern Utah outside of St. George and was on a hike and there was this little canyon that looked interesting and so I went off and looked at it. There were footprints on the trail and there's none here inside this canyon. And I can see, I mean, it's just a little canyon. It goes back, what, I mean, not even a quarter of a mile. But here it is and as I was walking there were a bunch of white-throated swifts flying around and making a bunch of noise and I thought ooh that'd be fun to put in a podcast and so I sat down and got my stuff out and pulled out my book of poetry and now the swifts are gone. So if we're lucky they will come back while I'm reading. Otherwise I'm just in a lovely desolate quiet spot about to read a poem. This is a poem by Thomas Hardy called The Convergence of the Twain Lines on the Loss of the Titanic. It is 11 stanzas long. Each stanza is three lines. The stanzas are numbered, but I am not going to read the numbers just because I think it will flow better as a listening experience without them. But if you look in the show notes, you'll see the way that uh, it was presented by Hardy with the Roman numerals. In the solitude of the sea, deep from human vanity, and the pride of life that planned her, stilly couches she. Steel chambers light the pyres of her salamandrine fires. Cold currents thrid and turn to rhythmic tidal lyres. Over the mirrors meant to glass the opulent, the sea worm crawls, grotesque, slimed, dumb, indifferent. Jewels in joy designed to ravish the sensuous mind lie lightless, all their sparkles bleared and black and blind. Dim, moon-eyed fishes near gaze at the gilded gear and query, What does this vaingloriousness down here? Well, while was fashioning this creature of cleaving wing, the, the imminent will that stirs and urges everything prepared a sinister mate for her, so gaily great a shape of ice, for the time far and dissociate. And as the smart ship grew in stature, grace, and hue, in shadowy, silent distance grew the iceberg, too. Alien they seemed to be, no mortal eye could see the intimate welding of their later history, or sign that they were bent by paths coincident on being anon twin halves of one august event, till the spinner of the years said, Now! And each one hears, and consummation comes, and jars two hemispheres.
Obviously, what Hardy's talking about here is the sinking of the ship Titanic, hit by the iceberg, went down, later blockbuster movie made about it. That's fine. But as a story goes, it's fine. He's telling, yes, it was a fancy ship, and now it's sunk. But Hardy is an interesting figure. He stands right sort of straddling between modernism and and previous ages. He simultaneously has ideas that are modern, but but isn't quite fully ready to embrace them, and so has something that feels a little older about him. So he's sort of like a forward-looking romantic, maybe? In the first part of the poem, where he's talking about the sea creatures that are, are looking at this sunken ship, the sea worm that is indifferent when he looks at the opulent glass, or the dim moon-eyed fishes that look at the ship and say, what's this doing down here? But it's really the last half of the poem that feels most interesting to me. In stanza six, it ends, the imminent will that stirs and urges everything, and then in stanza seven, prepared a sinister mate for her. Really, he's talking about the sinking of the Titanic as a fated event. The imminent will made the ship, but also made the iceberg, and had planned that the two were going to collide, and it was going to, as he says, jar two hemispheres. But everything from that line about the imminent will that prepared a sinister mate for her, that is the ship, there is a a coming together. We see them getting closer and closer and closer, and we can feel the dread of an event that we know exactly what's going to happen. There's nothing we can do about it, and yet we're, we're feeling it unfold here in Hardy's poem. The aspect of fate in this is explicit in the final stanza of the poem, when he refers to the spinner of the years. And here we have the the fates at their spinning wheel, snipping the thread, etc. So the spinner of the years, the disaster of the Titanic was something which in Hardy's world, in Hardy's poem, could not be avoided. As he says, they are twin halves of one event. So part of what's fun about this poem is the fact that we do know this story. We know exactly what's going to happen. We know it from the title, Lines on the Loss of the Titanic. Okay, it's about the sinking of a ship. We know the ship is going to sink. And yet his description of it is both broader and more universal and something mythic about it. And he's still able to bring some tension, excitement, dread to an event that we already know the outcome. It's interesting that he's able to do this in 36 lines, something which James Cameron takes two hours to make happen, which is, of course, to say that poetry is better than movies. Now I have one of my children who does not listen to this podcast, who desperately loves movies. And so by saying that poetry is better than movies, part of me is getting a thrill knowing that because he doesn't listen to the podcast, he will never be able to respond to that comment. Although you can, and you might think that I'm an idiot for making such a statement. I mean, movies take so much more time and they have motion and they have sound and they have music. And boy, they have all sorts of things that they can do that can tug at the heartstrings. 
but can they do it in 36 lines? I think not. Let's read Thomas Hardy's The Convergence of the Twain, Lines on the Loss of the Titanic. In a solitude of the sea deep from human vanity and the pride of life that planned her, stilly couches she. Steel chambers light the pyres of her salamandrine fires. Cold currents thrid and turn to rhythmic tidal lyres. Over the mirrors meant to glass, the opulent, the sea worm crawls, grotesque, slimed, dumb, indifferent. Jewels and joy designed to ravish the sensuous mind lie lightless, all their sparkles bleared and black and blind. Dim moon-eyed fishes near gaze at the gilded gear and query, what does this vaingloriousness down here? Well, while was fashioning this creature of cleaving wing, the imminent will that stirs and urges everything prepared a sinister mate for her, so gaily great a shape of ice, for the time far and dissociate. And as the smart ship grew in stature, grace and hue, in shadowy silent distance grew the iceberg too. Alien they seemed to be, no mortal eye could see the intimate welding of their later history, or sign that they were bent by paths coincident on being anon twin halves of one august event, till the spinner of the years said now, and each one hears, and consummation comes, and jars two hemispheres. <laughs>